The Old Testament reading today is Genesis chapter 26. The New Testament reading, Acts 3, 11 through 26. Genesis 26, Acts 3, 11 through 26. Let's give, us, give ourselves now to the reading of God's most holy word. Genesis 6, verse 1. Genesis 26, verse 1, rather, sorry. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech king of the Philistines looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servant had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna, and he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Pichol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us. 
And let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord's. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came to him and told him about the well that they had dug and said, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was forty years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Let us now go to Acts chapter 3 and read verses 11 through 26. While he clung to Peter and John, this man was healed, all the people, utterly astonished, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, saying, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that, they, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So far the reading of God's holy word, our prayer is that the Lord would now give His blessing to the preaching of the Scriptures and to our application of it to our lives today. If you're paying very careful attention to our study of the book of Genesis... You may have thought to yourself as I read this story that is contained in Genesis chapter 26 that this, this story seems a bit out of place. But it would only seem out of place if your expectation is for the narrative of Genesis to proceed chronologically. Remember that in the previous chapter we were told of the birth of twins, their names being Esau and Jacob. They were born to Isaac and Rebekah. 
But here in this passage, we encounter a story which seems to have happened in the days prior to the birth of the boys. Notice that the twins are not mentioned in this story. And even more significantly, it's very difficult to understand how all of this could have happened if Isaac and Rebekah were sojourning with twins in tow. Uh, Certainly, it would have been impossible for Isaac to say that Rebekah was his sister, as he did, and not his wife, if children were in the picture. It would have looked like a family unit. It would have been very suspicious. They were married, but without children in this story, and so it is not chronological. The question we should ask is, why then this non-chronological organization to the book of Genesis? Why first the story of the birth of the twins, and then we go backwards in time as we proceed forward in the book to a time when they were married but without children? And the answer is that Genesis is sometimes organized thematically. This is actually true of many books of the Bible. They are organized thematically and not chronologically as we expect in our day. In other words, the book is structured not so that you might have a chronological understanding of historical events primarily, but so that you might get the point that is being made in the passage. This non-chronological organization of Genesis forces us, if we are paying very careful attention to the narrative, to compare and contrast the story of Isaac that we are now considering with the story of his father Abraham that came before it. For if we set the two stories side by side, the the Abraham cycle, as it is sometimes called, and the Isaac cycle, as it is called in the book of Genesis, we find that these two cycles mirror one another in their thematic organization. In other words, if you were to set the story of Abraham alongside the story of Isaac, you would see that they follow a very similar pattern. Uh, The pattern is actually easy to see, even in the first two scenes of each of the cycles. If you were to set the first scene of the Abraham story, you have to think way back to remember this one. It started in Genesis eleven twenty-seven and ran to twelve nine. If you were to set the first scene of the Abraham story alongside the first scene of the Isaac story, which was found in twenty-five nineteen through twenty-eight, you would notice that they mirror one another thematically. In those introductory passages, promises were made concerning the offspring of Abraham and also the offspring of Isaac. That's what those texts, those first scenes were all about. Promises were made to Abraham concerning his offspring, and so too promises were made to Isaac concerning his offspring. And then remember the way that the second scene of the Abraham story began. Genesis 12.10 reads, Now there was a famine in the land. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, is this beginning to sound familiar to you? I skip forward a little bit here for the sake of time. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. That is the second scene of the Abraham cycle. It should sound familiar to you because it is very much like the story that we have just read concerning Isaac here in the second scene of the Isaac cycle. The second scene of the Isaac story that we are considering today uh, tells us that there was also a famine in his day. And he also behaved like his father did when he sojourned, saying that Rebekah was his sister when she was really his wife. And so the point is this. The story of Abraham and the story of Isaac are meant to be set side by side so that they might be compared 
and contrasted. They are structured in the same way so that we might do this. And as we are faithful to consider the text in this way, three things become clear. One, the promises that were made to Abraham were also made to Isaac. Two, the fear that plagued Abraham also infected Isaac. And three, the blessings that fell upon Abraham were also showered upon Isaac. These three things come clear, become clear. I, I am grateful that you put up with my technical introductions from time to time. This is not good preaching, actually, according to the books. The books say you must grab the audience's attention with some cute story or something like that, you know, to show how this is going to matter. But I've gotten technical with you. I think it's important that we do this with the Scriptures. Um, some approach the Scriptures as if they can be made into just whatever people want them to be, as if they are like a wax nose that can be shaped in any direction. But when you pay careful attention to things like the structure of a text, the meaning of the text, the, the point of the text becomes very, very clear. And so we are beginning to consider the point of this passage. First, let us consider that the promises made to Abraham were also made to Isaac. This is very significant. The promises made to Abraham were also made to Isaac. In verse 1 we read, Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And so here we are clued into the fact that we are supposed to compare Abraham's famine story in scene 2 with Isaac's famine story in scene 2 of his narrative. There was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, is what the text says. And brothers and sisters, I think we should remember that famines do sometimes threaten and plague the people of God as they sojourn in this world. We should remember that. Belonging to God does not mean that we are immune from the famine experience. Far from it. Life will have its ups and downs. There will be times of plenty and times of want, times of sickness and health. And so may we be like Paul who said, For I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. There, there's, there's a skill to that, isn't there? To know how to be brought low and to know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, Paul says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And there he says those most famous words, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Those are popular words, aren't they? But notice what they are really about. They are about learning how to live well with abundance and want. Sickness, health, times of plenty and times of famine. Uh, there is where we need the strength of the Lord. Uh, he needs to sustain us in those times of difficulty. Our spiritual parents, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, they endured famine. But when we co compare the account of the famine in Abraham's day with the account of the famine in Isaac's day, we do see a difference. Whereas Abraham left the land of promise to go down into Egypt, Isaac was told to remain in the land. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, as Abraham did, right? But dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands. 
This would have required great faith, wouldn't you agree? For Isaac to remain in this land that was plagued by famine, Egypt was not as as vulnerable to famine as Canaan was. For the crops of Egypt were watered by the ever-consistent flow of the Nile. But the crops of Canaan depended upon rain from heaven, and they did not always get it. And so droughts were not uncommon. But Isaac was warned not to run off to Egypt as Abraham did. He was to remain in Canaan, and he was to trust ever in the Lord. The lure of Egypt was undoubtedly very strong, though. Quite literally, for Isaac, the grass looked greener on the other side. And I'm sure he was tempted to go there. And I would bet that you also have felt the allure of Egypt Obviously, I do not mean that a literal famine has prompted you to consider, to consider a literal move to that place. I don't know if any of amongst us have considered moving to Egypt. But perhaps a famine of another kind has prompted you to consider a move to Egypt, spiritually speaking. Following Christ in this world is oftentimes difficult. And sometimes the grass does look greener on the other side. Sometimes the people of God look at Egypt, spiritually speaking, and say, life would be so much more pleasant there, I think. Life would be easier. Why am I constantly fighting against temptation and refraining from sin? Why all of this effort? But what does the Lord say to you and me? He says, remain in the land and trust in me. Indeed, the Scriptures say in James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Why does James say that? Because he knows that the people of God, to whom he was ministering in the new covenant age, they endured trials, they experienced tribulations, and he is saying to them, stand firm, stand up in the midst of it, pass the test, so that you might receive the crown of life which God has promised. Now remember that the Lord did not explicitly tell Abraham to go to Egypt. He decided to do that on his own. But here the Lord commanded Isaac saying, Do not leave Canaan because of the famine, but rather stay in this land, for it is this land that I will give to your offspring. That theme runs through this passage. More than that, the Lord also encouraged Abraham with, with this prom- Isaac rather with this promise, saying in verse 3, I will be with you and I will bless you. Notice that. Isaac, the grass looks greener, I know it, on the other side. Egypt is a temptation to you. I I understand that. Don't go there, but remain in this this famine-ridden land. Remain here in this difficult place. But he encourages him with these words, I will be with you, and I will bless you. And friends, I hope you would agree with me that there is no greater comfort in life than for God to say to you, I will be with you, And bless you. If God is with us, who can be against us? If God is for us, then what can man do to us? If God is with us, then even the most difficult and trying circumstances will be laced with His grace. His love will comfort us in our affliction. His presence will uphold and sustain us through the trial, whatever form it takes. So, brothers and sisters, you are to be reminded that if we are in Christ Jesus... God has promised to be with us always. This is why James exhorts those who have faith in Christ, saying to them this, Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. That was 
Hebrews 13.5, rather, and not from James. The one who has faith in Christ is not to find his or her security in material possessions. The Christ follower is to be content with what they have, no matter if it is little or much. And we are to take courage and comfort in the fact that God has promised never to leave us nor forsake us in Christ. That is where we should find our strength. That is where we should find our security and our ultimate comfort. God has promised not to forsake us if we are in Christ Jesus. So it may be that you have plenty or little. It may be that you have health or sickness. But what matters above all else? The Lord is devoted to you in Christ Jesus. He will not leave you nor forsake you. When the Lord called Isaac to remain in the land of promise that was at that time plagued by famine, He reassured him with these words, I will be with you and I will bless you. And after this, the Lord reminded Isaac of the promises made to his father Abraham and he made them to Isaac also. This is so important. Isaac, I want you to stay here. And I want you to take courage in the fact that I will be with you to bless you as you do stay here. Even though there is famine all around, I will be with you. And do not forget, Isaac, what I promised to your father Abraham. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands. Now we see why Isaac is not to leave the place. These are going to be your lands, your land, your offspring's land. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so Isaac was to remain in the land knowing that the Lord would be with him to bless him. And he was to remain being mindful of the promises made to his father and also to him. This land that is the land of Canaan would belong to his offspring. And his offspring would be as the stars of heaven. Remember Rachel at this time was still barren. This was not chronological, remember? And so these promises made to him also must have been very encouraging. Through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then the Lord added these words to move Isaac to obey. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. In other words, just as Abraham obeyed me and I was faithful to sustain him, so too you are to do the same. God would surely accomplish his purposes and fulfill his promises, but it would come about through the obedience of Isaac and his descendants. You say, why does this matter? Why does it matter that the promises made to Abraham were also made to Isaac? What's the point of it for us? Why does it matter to us? Well, it matters because it advances the story of redemption that is told in the pages of Holy Scripture. Promises were made to Abraham concerning land, offspring, their blessing, and the blessings of the nations through them. And here we see that those promises were now inherited by the next generation. Later in Genesis, the promises will be passed along again to Jacob. And again, they will be passed along until they are fulfilled in the Exodus event. And after that the conquest of Canaan, and finally the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, who is the son of Abraham, the son of God. And So here I am saying we are witnessing the unfolding of God's plan for the salvation of the world. It's happening right before our eyes. The promises are passed from one generation to the next. And so it's very important to the story, not just of Genesis, but of the whole Bible. This is the story of Scripture that is unfolding before us here. 
And these promises made to Isaac also matter because they are yours in Christ Jesus. These promises belong to you in Christ Jesus. And you might ask, well, how are they mine in Christ Jesus? Well, clearly they do not apply to you in the same way that they applied to Isaac. God has not said to you, to your offspring I will give all these lands, or I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, or I will give to your offspring all these lands, meaning Canaan, or in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. None of that has been said to you, nor to me. These promises were for Abraham first, then Isaac, then Jacob, and their descendants after them. Those promises were fulfilled ultimately in the arrival of the Christ. But these promises do belong to you if you are in Christ Jesus, for in Him you will partake of the fullness of the rewards that He has earned as the faithful son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Christ, we are not waiting to inherit a small sliver of land in Canaan, are we? As Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were. But instead, as Peter says, according to His promise, notice the word promise there, we, who are in Christ in this new covenant era, are waiting for what? New heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Do you see how all of this belongs to you if you are in Christ Jesus, but it is advanced now that the Christ has come? Indeed, these promises were unique to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They found their ultimate fulfillment in the birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Christ, but they are ours now more fully developed. So to us, we look at these promises and we do not say, I cannot wait until we take possession of Canaan. We say, I cannot wait until we take possession of something far greater, something of which Canaan typified, namely, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So these promises belong to us if we are in Christ Jesus. We must interpret them, though, um, redemptive historically, Noticing the progression that has taken place now that the Christ has come into the world. The promises made to Abraham were also made to Isaac. And this advanced God's work of redemption in the world. That is the point. But notice that though Isaac remained in the land, in obedience to the word of the Lord, he did still struggle in the faith. And here is that theme again. Our Forefathers, our spiritual forefathers, sometimes struggled in the faith. In this story, we learn that the fear that plagued Abraham also plagued Isaac. This part of the story should sound very familiar to you. Verse 6, so Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, what did he do? He said, she is my sister. For, and here is the reason, he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. So Isaac lied about his wife, just as his father Abraham lied about his, saying only that she was his sister. Both men were driven to do what they did by fear. Both men lacked faith when they took the road of self-protection rather than going on trusting fully in the Lord. Do not forget that the Lord had promised to be with Isaac and to bless him. That promise was just given to him, but here he seems to have forgotten those promises to some degree. Here he seems to have forgotten that the Lord had set his love upon him. Had he remembered the loving kindness of the Lord, he would not have allowed fear to drive him, for there is no fear in love, 
but perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4.18 says. Had Isaac remembered the loving kindness of the Lord that had been set upon him, he would not have allowed fear to drive him to sin in this way. I think it is important to notice that in both the story of Abraham's deception and the story of Isaac's deception, the pagan nations here are portrayed as having more integrity than the patriarchs. Do you see it? Both Abraham and Isaac went into foreign places and they sojourned there. And their view of the people was that they were so ungodly, so unholy, certainly they would kill them to take their beautiful wives away. Certainly that was their character, but quite the opposite. It is Abraham and Isaac who end up being unholy and sinful and the people more righteous than they. When Abraham lied in Egypt and then again in Gerar, those kings were appalled by his actions. They were astonished that Abraham would lie and they were furious, furious that they would put them in a position where they might sin by taking Sarah as wife. They were concerned, evidently, not to sin. <laughs> Abraham was willing to sin, to lie. And the same is true here. Verse 8, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. I, what this means is that he was being flirtatious with her. And so just by chance, the king looks out and says, Huh, that's not the way that a brother and sister behave. They appear to be husband and wife. And so Abimelech called Isaac, and again, this must have been so very awkward. Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac again said, because I thought lest I die because of her. And Abimelech noticed the righteousness that this man possesses. I, don't, I do not mean that he was right before God when I say that, but there was a degree of, of, of holiness, of righteousness, of uprightness. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Again, Isaac thought that the men of Gerar were thoroughly wicked. Instead, he was humbled to discover that in this instance, they were more righteous than he. And I think this is a very important theme. It's a very important theme now that is definitely present in the book of Genesis, for it was present in the Abraham cycle and now in the Isaac cycle. Who read this book at first, brothers and sisters. The Israelites did, after they had been redeemed from Egypt, after they had been set apart as God's chosen people, as they were wandering towards the land of promise, they received this book from Moses. What, why these stories about the shortcomings of the patriarchs and the apparent righteousness even of the nations? Again, not right before God, properly speaking, but they come off better than the patriarchs. Why this? I think it is in order to say to Israel, listen, you are chosen of the Lord. You are set apart as His peculiar and special and holy people, not because you're better than everyone else. Why else would these stories be embedded in, in our scriptures? They could have easily been ignored and other things could have been emphasized. More positive things concerning the patriarchs. But no, what does Moses do under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He puts this thing front and center. So as to say, Israel, do not get the wrong idea. It's not as if the Lord looked down from heaven and noticed that you were more righteous than everyone else. Far from it. The Lord had mercy on you. The Lord was gracious to you. And this too we must remember, it's not only the heritage of ethnic Israel. It's our heritage, brothers and sisters. 
Abraham and Isaac are our forefathers, spiritually speaking. And by considering their imperfections, we too are reminded that our election in Christ is by the free grace of God alone and not because of something deserving within us. I've said it before and I'll say it again, there is nothing more humbling than the doctrine of unconditional election when it is properly understood. There is nothing more humbling than this. We must remember and never forget that God, and I'm here quoting 2 Timothy 1.9, saved us and called us to a holy calling, can it get more clear, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That one verse says it all, doesn't it? You've been called to God as His possession, as His peculiar people, to be holy. But don't get the wrong idea. It's not because of your works. It's not because of your works. It's because of His purpose. It's because of His grace, the text says. And this was given to us before the ages began, Paul says to Timothy. Lastly, let us see that the blessings that fell upon Abraham were also showered upon Isaac. No sooner do the scriptures finish describing Isaac's sin of deception and the righteous actions of Abimelech king of Gerar than do we read in verse 12, And Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines began to envy him. Indeed, the Lord was faithful to be with Isaac and to to bless him despite his shortcomings. The Philistines envied his wealth, and so they began to drive Isaac away. Isaac would dig a well, and the Philistines would quarrel over it and claim that it was theirs, and this happened repeatedly. It, It should be noticed Uh, By the way, that this section, which runs from 26, 18 through 22, it mirrors the story of Abraham's separation from Lot. Remember I said the two narratives mirror one another? Well, Abraham also had a problem uh, with the land not being able to support his flocks. He was too wealthy, too rich. He and Lot had to separate. Uh, Now the exact same thing is happening here in the Isaac cycle. So Genesis 13 mirrors this passage. Abraham was blessed of the Lord, and similarly in the story of Isaac, he was being driven from Gerar. Isaac was also blessed of the Lord. From there, verse 23, he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Notice what Isaac did. He built an altar there. And called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Why all of this talk of well digging? What's this about? It's repeated over and over again that wells were stopped up out of jealousy and envy in an attempt to drive Isaac away, and more wells were dug. Why all of this talk of well digging? Well, it should be remembered that there was a famine in the land of Canaan, most likely due to a lack of rain. Having a source of water in Canaan was essential to survival in that land. And here is a clear sign of the Lord's blessing upon Isaac. The Lord provided water for him in a dry and thirsty land. Isaac was blessed of the Lord and the provision of water was a clear sign of this blessing. 
And brothers and sisters, our sojourning is not physical, I understand that. It is spiritual. And so too, our thirst is not physical, but spiritual. And those blessed in the Lord are those who have faith in Christ. And what does Christ say? He says, to those who have faith in Him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never, what? Shall never thirst, but they will be satisfied in Christ Jesus. And again, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In verses 26 through 33, we learn that even the Philistines, as they are called in this passage, Recognize that Isaac was blessed. Abimelech, Ahuzeth, his advisor, and Pichol, the commander of his army, came to Isaac. And, and what did they say? Hey, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. Friends, I ask you, when the world looks in upon your life, can they tell that you are blessed in Christ? Can they see it? Can they see something distinguishing about you? Do they notice that you have love, joy, and peace? Do they see someone whose hunger and thirst has been satiated by God? Do they see one who is thankful and content in this world? And that is my exhortation to all of you, that that you would walk with Christ in such a way that the world around you takes notice And in fact, would come and ask a reason for the hope that is in you. When the world looks in upon your life, do they see someone who is blessed in the Lord? They should. And if they don't, then something needs to change within us. I'm not saying, do they look in and see someone who is rich and prosperous? I'm saying, do they see someone who is blessed in the Lord? Someone who even in adversity, in in a time of famine, in want, in sickness, do they see someone who is clinging to Christ, and is indeed happy in Christ Jesus. It is important that we be happy in Christ Jesus, that we be thankful in Him, that we look to Him and see that though we might be very poor in Christ, we are rich. It is not proper for the people of God to go around grumbling and complaining in Christ Jesus. It is not right. For it shows that we do not really believe or see that we are rich in Him. Something needs to change if this is the case The world ought to be able to look in upon us and say, this one is blessed. Materially speaking, I don't understand it. They don't seem blessed, but they are blessed. They are happy in their God. And so friends, if you are in Christ, then you are truly blessed. Isaac was blessed with earthly things and the king of Gerar took note of it. But if you are in Christ, you are blessed in the spiritual realm. God has blessed us, and I quote Ephesians 1.3, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Listen carefully to the richness of this language. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have, do you see what Paul is doing here? He's emphasizing everything that we have in Christ Jesus. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time 
to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Oftentimes that text is read in order to demonstrate the doctrine of election or predestination. And indeed, that teaching is there. But what else is here in this passage? In fact, the main point of it is to say to the church, you are abundantly rich in Christ. You have an inheritance in Christ Jesus. You have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. You have been blessed with the grace of God. He has showered His love upon you. And don't forget it, Christian. Perhaps you noticed uh, that this passage that we are considering in Genesis 26 today, ends rather abruptly and kind of strangely. In verses 34 and 35, we find a little remark about Esau, and uh, who is Isaac and Rebekah's oldest son. We find a little remark about Esau. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemoth, Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Doesn't that seem kind of out of place? It's all been about Isaac and Rebekah going back in time before they had twins. Now all of a sudden we're talking about Esau again. And we learn something about the marriage of Esau to these two Hittites. And the fact that this made life very bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. I think the point is this. It's to get us back on track with the story. Uh, It's to demonstrate that the Lord did in fact favor Jacob the younger over Esau the elder. As we learned in the previous passage, Esau married from amongst the Hittites, and we do know this, that bad marriages can make a real mess of things. But these two verses, 34 and 35, they kind of prepare us to get on again with the story of Jacob and Esau. As we move to a conclusion... Let us remember that the Lord, brothers and sisters, is faithful to keep His promises. He was faithful to Abraham and Isaac, and He will be faithful to us. It is impossible for God to lie, and that is why it is right for us to flee to Him for refuge and to take strong encouragement in Him. Indeed, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, Hebrews 6, 18-19, that the Lord keeps His promises. Let us put away all fear, therefore. There is no fear in love, but love, perfect love, casts out fear. Are you convinced that God loves you in Christ Jesus? Then there is no room for fear. Let us walk by faith and not by fear, as Isaac did when he lied about his wife, saying that she was his sister. And let us see clearly how very blessed we are in Christ Jesus. I ask you, do you rejoice in this, brothers and sisters? Are you thankful and content in this world with whatever you have? Are you joyful and at peace? It is only right for us to be if we are indeed blessed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us bow together for prayer. Father, we thank you for your holy scriptures. They reveal many things to us. One thing that they certainly reveal is that you, God, are a faithful God a gracious and merciful God, who though we deserved only your wrath, determined to pour out grace and to place love upon fallen and sinful human beings. We see your faithfulness clearly on display in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and then again Jacob. 
And we thank you for the reminder that we have in them that you are a faithful God who keeps his covenant. We are blessed to live uh, so far into the development of your plan of redemption. We have witnessed the arrival of the Christ who was promised in these days. And now being in him, we are rich and blessed tremendously. Lord, help us to truly believe these things so much so that it affects our attitude as we live in this world, as we sojourn in this dry and thirsty land. May we be thankful and content people. May we cling to you always, knowing that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Increase our faith, Lord. Bring glory to your name. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.